What's up, Drew? How's it going? <laughs> Welcome to How College Works. It is almost the start of our semester here at our school. Yeah. So we have next week. This is this is our week of crazy with the faculty and staff, where we get all the information, some of which we've seen before, some of which we haven't, and then get hopefully a running start at the start of our semester. It's also when you realize how much of your summer you might have wasted. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> I mean, we've talked before about how we ideally nominally spend our summers. Drew, how about you? Where are you in your school's sort of calendar? Are your students starting? Are they going to start? Where are they at? So the students are starting on Thursday. Most of the teachers are back at work already. Yeah, that, so that's one thing is that your, your teachers, your instructors, whether they be high school teachers or professors, are back on campus about a week before students get on campus because the administration has things they need to like clear up. So I want to talk about some of the things that you know, we expect or we want our students to, to be doing, to be ready, to have attitudes, whatever, for the start of the semester and to see how much of this from our perspective, matches or doesn't match with high school expectations. So, I mean, I can start because I just talk all the time, but would one of you like to jump in with? Well, only because I received an email about this last night, and it's something that I covered in my summer advising session, sessions, is textbooks. Can we talk about how you need to have those? Sure, that's one of the things that, uh, that, that is on my list. So I enrolled students and my advice to them was, okay, I'm sending in your class list with the textbooks, which we're required to list before students so they can see the, the textbooks and know the potential cost. We look at the, both the, you, the new and the used and maybe the rental price um, with the specific idea that you have that information going in. So I told them, yeah, you need to have that textbook the first day. I will assign homework that, for that night. You'll basically need to read something and be ready for it the next time we meet. Um, but I still had a student email me, are you sure I need to buy the textbooks before I get to campus? Oh yeah, I'm sure. Or you can buy them in the bookstore, which is always a possibility, but you need to have them in your hot little hands by class time on Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay. Yeah, that's basically mine as well. I, there's there's times I, I have some of my classes where I actually want to start not just having this homework for my students. I want to actually have discussions of the book. I really want them to actually have read the book before the first day of class. That's my ideal. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No students do that, but that's really how I would like to do it because then I, I have this dead day. I can't do anything. But I don't have a lot of time in some of my classes. A dead day is a real, can be a real problem. Uh, in terms of actually just managing to fit in what I need to fit in, which sounds ridiculous over a, uh, what are we, like a 15-week <laughs> semester. Like but still, it, it does boil down sometimes to another day would help me. Yeah. Drew, how about you? In high school? Right. Well, I, yeah, I think our, our semesters in high school are a little bit longer, a number of days, I mean, and hours and whatever. Um, and, you know, at, at high school, the textbooks are, are in a public school uh, owned by the district. And they're sitting in, a lot of times, the library or 
you know, some central spot on campus, or sometimes the, the textbooks are in the classrooms, but they all have to get checked out. And so that takes uh, a certain amount of time for each kid to get six different textbooks for each class. And that's, that's kind of one of our opening activities, whether it's the first day or it's the during the first week sometime. Um, but, you know, I, I did start, you know, math on day one to make sure students realize, like, we're doing work in this class. We're not going to spend two days going over the syllabus and passing out the textbook, and here's your computer login. We, uh, we're going straight to some math. I just I couldn't use the textbook for it because that wasn't all set up yet for, for my classes. So, you know, there I think some students are used to uh, working straight away on the first day, and but they're also used to the textbook not belonging to them. And they're used to, you know, I can just get the, that textbook a week in or two weeks in. Uh, the AP students, advanced placement students, and top end guys that are all going to college, they've been doing summer work. And, you know, we've been getting emails like, I can't get my computer login to work to submit the work and these kind of things. So there are, there's a handful of those students that, that um, are, are used to doing the reading over summer and, and coming to class ready to go. I mean, it's a good sort of reminder for me since I went to high school. I graduated high school in 98. I am fast losing my memory of the stuff I did in high school. So I actually don't, I have no recollection of receiving my textbooks. But it must have happened, right? It did. It It did. did. I had those textbooks. I I obviously didn't buy them because I don't, they would have moved around the country with me. Our uh, AP physics and AP calculus classes did not have textbooks. We were all working on chalkboards and just got fives on those APs. By the way, so it might have been a different, different moment back in back in the day. It's true. Or I think I, th- I do remember now getting like early access to a textbook for an AP class, like right at the end of the year before. Like they're like, here you can have this. We'll be doing it tomorrow. You can read it over the summer or something like that. Um, yeah, that was like three days of maybe I'll read over the summer. It's like, I'm not touching this thing again. But, I mean, it's been so long. It, I've been so long in an environment where I or the people I am I'm teaching are responsible for paying out of pocket for these textbooks and to bring in them. But I've forgotten that. I've forgotten that they, it was the normal, the normal thing where, like, you can show up and be like, do you have my textbook? No. Well, I mean, it would be nice to know the percentage or the, the number of students at a first-year college who are paying retail to be there. I mean, I was using student loans, and that was part of my you know loan training was like, this cash goes into your account, but it's for textbooks. This cash goes into your account, but it's for housing. Mm-hmm. This cash goes into your account. You can't buy a car. You've got to buy food and books and pay your rent and or your you know dorm a fee or whatever. So sweet I, Bluetooth I speaker is essential for my learning. Stack of money and had to go buy textbooks. Well, and that's I feel I don't know. My students seem surprised at the cost of textbooks. And they are expensive. They are, and I'm like, what? Well, I don't know. This is not something that we talk about like in high school, or not something that we talk about in terms of like I don't know, even our packet that we send to people. But like five hundred dollars a semester is not uncommon for no, textbooks. And in fact, if you're in the sciences, you can count on almost twice that, depending on what your classes are. Because we have a Spanish textbook that is four hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah, and so like anytime I enrolled students this summer, and I said, okay, I'm going to point out the cost of the Spanish textbook. One, you get to use it for two semesters, so that's that. Two, you might look into renting it 
because it's $400. But, like, for whatever reason, they're still not, they're like, well, they won't use the book. I'm like, no, it's listed. It's, no, no, we have, we use it. <laughs> we only list the things that we're going to use. Yeah. And you're going to have to call, like, you're just going to have to spend money. I'm sorry. And I know that sounds cold, but you have no, to. I think that's a misconception, too, is that the, the textbooks assigned by the state, adopted by the state, and then the district is allowed to, at the high school level, is allowed to adopt um, or use anything that the state's adopted. The state could have adopted two or three curriculums, curricula, and the district is allowed to pick from that list. And then some of the teachers would go in and say, well, I'm going to use this out of the textbook, but I'm going to use supplemental material here. And so students are used to teachers like not touching the book or not touching the book oh. for three weeks or a month or not touching the book except every other week. and and then doing all the supplemental material. So I can see that there would be possibly an expectation that, oh, this is this is the textbook, but the college told you to use that, and we're not really going to hit that. All right, so that comes back to the difference in the, in the autonomy that we have within the structure of our classes where I'm in total control. So I only pick a textbook I want to use, which means if you come into my class, we're using matter and in, in, in interactions, and we were going to use that book, absolutely. We're going to basically cover... All like 1800 pages or whatever it is Jeez. in two semesters well and that being said we do like you chose that book because it probably has the content that you absolutely need but if there were two books that had the exact same content you'd probably go with the one that was more reasonably priced because you're not trying to screw students over no not at all and in fact i mean some people are like well you don't even think about the price that's not true we but absolutely we do. Do. We do and we've been charged by administration to even consider that more specifically like well if you can go with a cheaper textbook or with a previous edition do that and when i can i do i'm not trying to punish students i'm not trying to pick a 90 dollars textbook because i'm mean i mean by the way <laughs> listeners uh professors get zero kickbacks from zero. publishers in fact None. i had to buy my own textbook because some pub will not for like first year seminar, but for my grammar class, because that publisher is like, nope, you have to have at least 25 students to get a free copy. Well, I don't have 25 students in my grammar and uses class, so I paid $80 for the textbook. I don't want to hear anybody gripe about that. Right. I mean, so if we have enough students, then you can get a desk copy. The publisher will send you a copy or give you online free access because it's in their interest to give the book to me, to have me access so I can see what it is, so I'll adopt it. Yeah, but some, they're well, even you're just missing the racket. Sounds like you need to publish your own textbook and That's then exactly have to exactly what we need to do. That but that only matters if it gets adopted by like Texas. Yeah. Because <laughs> then everybody uses whatever Texas adopts. Uh, but like, there's no way I'm going to write a textbook. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of work that goes into making a physics textbook, and I don't. That's not what I wanted to spend my time on. I don't have grad students to like write problems and write solutions to those well, problems I, for me. Yeah, I didn't mean to get us off, off track. The, the fact is there's textbooks that are adequate and cover exactly what you need to cover, and they're a bajillion dollars because of the publishers, not yeah. because of the, of the professors. Right. Yes. Yes. And that the, we, do, we do pay attention to those things. Absolutely. I mean, we, we try to. And there are times when I'm like, no, if I use the previous edition, like with my professional writing class, I'm like, you're not going to get the information that you need. It's the previous edition is 10 years old. How's that going to help you with technical and professional writing? It's yeah, not. Yeah, it was a different world 10 years yeah. ago. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. Just trust that we're everything we do is in your best interest, and I know that that's hard to do. 
Um, and stuff can yeah. get super expensive. I mean, a some of these two semester physics textbooks, you can you can spend four hundred dollars. I mean, and you can actually spend less on an English class sometimes if you have to buy six novels. Yeah. Well, if you're taking like British literature, you can buy some of those things for like twenty five cents. Right. <laughs> you can get them used. Yeah. Um, but there are just some classes that are going to be less, and some that are going to be more, and it. Typically evens out over the course of a semester, but like five hundred dollars, just count on it. Yeah, I mean the thing that you need to be careful of when you're playing with fire is like the playing chicken on textbook selection on textbook purchase. You know, students like I couldn't afford it. Okay, I get that. You know, check the library for a reserved copy. Talk, make a friend in the class. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that you know in high school when they provide the books. They provide the books. It is on them to make sure that they give you access to the books in when you need to have access to the books. Uh, here, it, it's not my job to make sure you have access to your books. Yeah, it's actually, you're right. It's actually, uh, in this state of California, it's legally required that the district has a copy for every kid and <laughs> at home if it's requested at home. Yeah. I don't even uh -huh. request it. It just has to be available. It, just in case somebody requests to have one at home, we have to have enough copies for every head that appears right and we're legally required when we determine our next semester's course offerings to provide the textbooks that we're going to be using that are required and they will say required, required because our students have to buy them and we have to give them enough lead time to find a good price basically well and to decide you know maybe you're maybe you don't want to take physics just for fun Right. It's, a it's going to be a four dollar textbook. Maybe you'll be like, well, maybe not. You know, and you need time to make that consideration. Well, and so you mentioned like reserve on the library in the library. So I do that too. Like um, I use my allotment for book purchases to the library to purchase my textbooks so that I can put them on reserve and have them in the general collection, so that students can use them. But that is meant to be a temporary fix. It is not meant to serve as your textbook. Yeah. Correct. And also, I've had lots of students be like, well, can't you just like photocopy or scan in the first three chapters for me? No. That is illegal. <laughs> well, there's that. Oh, wow. Wow. And annoying. Right. What well, one, illegal. Two, I'm not spending what little copy budget I have because most of my stuff is digital, like burning that for three chapters of a book for you. Yeah. Sorry. That's unreasonable well, no, burden I've, on me. I've had, I've had college classes too where, where that was one of the workarounds was the professor suggested you go copy and I'll pay 10 cents of the library per page to copy the 25 pages of tonight's reading or whatever, which is silly because then, then it puts a little bit of pain on my budget and my, you know, 10 cents a page and I got to borrow my friend's book or the, or the library copy so I can spend 20 minutes photocopying at the library before I go home and read it. Or you just read it. order the book. And, yeah. you know, people will figure ways to work around or, or share or whatever. Or, you know, it's, I think nowadays it's harder on students with student loans and tuition mm -hmm. costs and those things than it was when I was in college. It was a little bit um, less of a burden as mm -hmm. far as just the, the, the dollar amount of student loan I will say that was happening. Related to that, you know, cost of books and stuff, I had a colleague in another institution uh, who taught computer science and said, this, you know, this is the book we're going to need. He was like, do we really need that? Yes, we really need that. And one of the guy, one of the guys, one of the young men in the class said, I have a PDF. Anybody want the PDF? And he's like, A, that's illegal. Do not be saying that in my class. B, I'm the author of that book. 
Yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking? You know, but yeah, that's, that's called tipping your hand, and the, and the students who are doing that that nonsense need to at least learn um, not to tell you your know, professors you're doing illegal stuff. Well, you'd be yeah. Don't don't do illegal things. And if I have if I happen to have a PDF copy of things, um, I'm not blasting it on Facebook about how I hey I broke the law. Yeah. I also don't put on Facebook and Snapchat how I'm breaking the speed limit. Even you know yeah. that that probably has less of a yeah. Well, I don't know. Just, like yes, you're right. That shouldn't have been said out loud in public. Maybe if he had a couple friends in class, he would have just whispered on the sly, and nobody well, would have known. Put him aside after class or anything. Like by the way, when you go to college, you're age of majority. Like all that shield from the law because you're a minor. That's gone now. You know, I I, I told students, you know, half jokingly, only half jokingly. Like the FBI knocks on my door, and I know that you did something. I will sell you out so fast, your head will spin. It's like it's <laughs> not worth not my on. career to shield you from your stupid mistakes. So we don't have students photocopying in the same way, like, first of all, they're not going to stand at the copy machine and waste their time. They're going to take photos of each individual page and then read off of their phone and then pull that up on their phone whenever we have class discussion. So I can take some snapshots of stuff. I do it all the time as an adult. I need to snap a picture of the board or, or a book that I need to remember or the serial code on my you know, computer for tech support. But usually not really copyrighted material. In large quantities. As a student, their thought process is most likely going to be, this is my phone, this is my photograph, I'm not okay. selling it. The thing is, it's not their intellectual property, it doesn't matter that it's their phone. Same way that if you download a movie onto your phone that has been bootlegged, it is not your intellectual property, you're not allowed to do that if you've got it bootlegged. You can stream it through a legal service, but let's move on. <laughs> we will definitely come back to that. Yeah, Drew, for high schoolers, what is it that you are wanting them to have sort of ready, prepared kind of mindset when they're coming into your classroom? Uh, I want them to have an empty, kind of removed of expectations. You know, I teach math, so for what math class looks like, I'm, I am kind of expecting, because I'm teaching, you know, 9, 10, 11, I don't have the 12th graders, but I am a little bit expecting people to come in like, oh, we're back at school, you know, first day of school, first week of school, man. And that way I can, if they come in with a, an empty head instead of a, instead of a presupposition of, of this is going to be one more terrible math year, um, I can set the, the expectation and the culture in my classroom of, of willingness to fail and try. Uh, so I really do want, like I know maybe college, you guys are expecting a certain level of we're ready to go, here's my book and I'm ready. Mm -hmm. um, I know the reality and my students know the reality of 12 years of public school that they've been in that, you know, we're going to check the textbooks out. But they're also expecting me as teacher to say what's going to happen. And when they walk in the door blank, I'm going to let them know here's where you sit, it's a safe spot. Uh, so that they don't have to be anxious or worry about who am I sitting next to, who's my classmates, and I just give that first day explanation of all what my expectations are. So you want them basically to come in sort of with checking their expectations before they come in so that you can tell them what to be expecting in your class. Give the chance to the teacher to turn around and say, yeah, I'll, I'll, if you, if as a student you're giving the teacher a test, like is it going to be safe for me as a student in here to try my hardest and fail and I won't get injured? Um, then as a teacher I want to stand up and say, yes, I'm passing the test. This is how it's going to be safe. This is how we're going to fail. This is how we're going to give each other feedback. 
you know, there's where the bathroom is. <laughs> Those kind of, you know, here's when we can take breaks and, and everybody knows the routines and procedures. Um, and we can kick off quickly into content and not spend a week passing textbooks out those kind of things. I think I would like that as well, <laughs> basically. Writing has a lot of baggage, too. I'm dealing with a lot of leftovers from high school. Like, oh, I'm just, writing's not my thing. I'm not a good writer. I, I mean, seriously, I hear that probably 50 times during the first week of class. And it's really disheartening. And it's hard to kind of set a positive tone whenever students are automatically expecting that they're probably barely going to make it. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that, but I mean, I would like students to be willing and feel safe and, you know, listen to what I have to say, I suppose. And I'm not talking about, when, I, when we say safe, I'm not talking about that buzzword around now called safe space or whatever. I mean, their affective filter is down to where they can receive critical feedback from, a, for example, from a coach about, hey, you swung the bat really terrible, you need to lift your elbow or lower your elbow or whatever the thing is in baseball. And they'll be able to hear that feedback and act on it rather than get, you know, with their filter up, become defensive. That's the safe I'm talking about. Right. It's a safe spot to receive critical feedback about your mistakes. Right. And, and I think those are probably related, but that's, I think, sort of the same thing that, that I want is like, I want a positive learning environment. And one of the things that that means to me is that, as you say, you can risk failure, you can fail, you can get an answer wrong, and that... In my classroom, you don't have to worry about your classmates like snickering or making fun of you when you do that, or you know somehow thinking less of you. You know, I had some times last semester where I said, "Okay, we need to stop here." Sort of early in the semester, is like, I know it's to sound like I'm just going to jump on you, but this is just a point where I need to illustrate this: is that you two know each other, and that's fantastic, and you're like giving her a little flack, and that's cool as you know, you friends, not in this classroom, but. In this classroom, we don't all know each other. And, you know, goofing around with your friends like that, which is fine with your friends, but I don't know that you necessarily know each other. And so then it bec then to me, it's an attack. And if I don't know that, probably nobody else, who, if they don't know your friends, knows that. They don't know if you're going to give them enough space and grace to be to not sort of give them crap when they get a wrong answer. And so it shuts down people feeling comfortable right. asking questions or Grace, grace is the right word for that. And that reminder to students is something that they're not a lot of times aware of consciously to be able to say, oh, you know what, yeah, I'm having a good time. I'm trying to be comfortable with a joke and make myself at ease. But... Uh, how is everybody else perceiving me is not always something that's at the front of their mind. Right. Whereas I, as an instructor, like that's often at the front of my mind. It's not just what am I, what not was the content that I have to deliver, and oh, what is a mildly amusing dad jokey kind of way to do this? Because after all, I am a dad and I'm a nerd, so I make God. jokes for myself. That's really what a dad joke okay. is. You but know, how are I they going to? I have the same. Uh, sorry to cut you off. I have the same kind of conversation with students even down in ninth grade, 10th grade, as far as I know that you guys are joking and that's good. And at the same time, as the role of teacher in the classroom, if I let that go along without saying anything to it, um, the other students in the room mm -hmm. think that Mr. Highland does not care about, you know, this, you know, whether they thought it was bullying or teasing or picking on or whatever. And they think, oh, Mr. Highland saw that, witnessed it, said nothing. And... So it's 
it's I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm trying to make sure my classroom is open, available for every student. So right. keep doing what you keep having a good time, and just make sure that it's appropriate for everybody in the room. Yeah, and that and that can be a tough you know transition to make and think about not just what's going to amuse myself and my friend, but we are naturally self-centered, right? And getting that focus out to be like, okay, what about all these people in this classroom in front of me? Is this a joke I'd make to Melody? If we're, all, if we're just hanging out and the microphone's not on? Huh. Would I make this joke if the microphone's on and I expect other people to be listening? If no, then I probably should not be bringing that into the classroom. So um, I kind of want to mention something else. Sure. So I teach some required classes. <laughs> And a lot of times students come to those required sort of core curriculum classes with the idea that, oh, I've already learned this in high school, I don't even, I don't need to know this, or I already know how to write, or I know how to do math, or whatever it is. Because like writing and math tend to be like the two classes you can't, you mean, you're, there's a science, but you have a choice. I don't know, I would like for students to come with, you know, an open mind in terms of, there's probably stuff I don't know. And I could, if I learned one thing from this semester, then it was worth my time. But I spend a lot of time, I feel like, at least between the lines, convincing them that writing is important. And that's a little frustrating. <laughs> and also convincing them that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Which is also a little frustrating. So this idea of just maybe coming to actually learn something. It doesn't have to be, you have to learn all the things, but learn a couple of things and just try to like get the best you can out of the class. Try to get something out of it. Going a different tack from the you don't know as much as you think you know, which is often I feel is the default, you know, from a college professor is all like you think you know how to write, but you really don't. Well, it's just but, different. Hey, but Leaving all that alone, uh, you know, I took introductory physics two semesters, three actually three semesters of it as an undergraduate. We did modern physics and stuff no like one that. Cares. Mm, it's great. <laughs> and then as a TA, I taught you know multiple semesters of introductory physics, and I'm just like now I was like I'm feeling like I was just barely older than my students. I learned something every semester I taught. And it wasn't like necessarily, oh my God, I didn't know it at all and now I know it. Right. But there were like nuances and little things that made stuff fit together better. Like every time I taught a class, I was figuring stuff out, seeing things that were connected more. And those have led to more, deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. And not just somebody standing up and saying, here's the deeper understanding, but me looking at it and fitting it together again and seeing other people's questions and trying to look at it from their perspective and trying to make see how it made sense to them. That is super powerful and important for understanding any subject. And I'm sure writing is the same way. So if you're like, ah, oh, no, I got this. I'm a straight-A student in English. I was. I got C's my first semester in composition, as we have previously discussed. <laughs> but even if you get A's and you get A's again, there are aspects of that. Learn. Yeah, there's aspects of that. There's subtleties which you didn't get the first time around, which you can get this time around, and that you have an instructor who is much more flexible in what they can cover and how they can talk about it. They're, they're not as bound by the curricula uh, curriculum necessarily as your high school teachers might be so one thing is if you want to get more out of it you can ask the, those questions and they will almost certainly answer it I'm sure Melody if a student came to you says we just covered 
whatever in class. And, you know, I get that, but why? Why is that? <laughs> I mean, not in a sort of like, why is this important? But sort of like, what do I use this for? Mm-hmm. And like the tone and the, my communication there is like, I am genuinely curious. What is this used for? I want to know. What I hear you describing is the difference between a, um, like a, a really hand, like, uh, what's the word I want? An active kind of seeking out student mm-hmm. versus a student who's just like, here I am, you know, teach me. Oh, I already know this. And, and maybe that's the topic of another, uh, uh, another hour some other time is um, what are those qualities of those students who are truly like I could step into a class and say, you know, I think the topic looks kind of something I know already and it's going to be boring, but I'm going to get the most out of this as I can and ask questions that pertain to me and, but not be so self-centered that the entire class is like, oh, it's this guy again, <laughs> you know, and, and have that, that, consciousness of yourself as a student seeking information and and you know my my career and my job is a certain field but this class is uh you know an english class would not necessarily be related to my you know current field but i could still learn from it and still be interested in asking questions about journalism and and ethics and whatever Th- those qualities of a of a student of a i don't know renaissance man henry the eighth type of student henry the eighth is a bad example a renaissance man Leonardo. Leonardo. <laughs> I'm like a renaissance man. <laughs> Whatever. So, yeah, I don't know if it's... I think like there is like active versus passive learners, um, which is... There are passive learners who I think are still trying to learn, but they're just not very active about it. But there are some people who I think are like, well, I'm not going to learn anything, which is different from being passive. Like, just tell me what you want me to know. It's almost like they're closed versus open learners or something. I don't. That's right. not. The I mean, word. yeah. I, th- I think in, maybe engaged is a word that but you're not, looking for. Yeah, but even but, you know, if a, if a student is like aware of the purpose that they chose to go to college. I mean, in high school it makes sense. We have a, a we have to serve every student. In college, it's like, well, you picked to come, right? And you took out a loan or you borrowed money or whatever you did to get here. So if your purpose is to get a certificate and go do HVAC which is admirable and makes, you know, that's a livable thing. Those guys have saved uh, my not, life. And they probably make more money than I do. <laughs> Versus, like, so they want, uh, that type of student would, would say, give me the information and the knowledge and let me go read the book and take the test. Done. Versus, a, you know, a liberal arts or a, or a fine arts student who was saying, let me learn as much as I can learn and be as well-rounded as I can be. Not to say that that's the only two options, but, you know, <laughs> I think that, you, there's, there's different. If you know the purpose, if you have a clear focus of the purpose, you're at campus as a student. That can, you know, uh, change your idea of like, oh, this is why I'm having this reaction in class to like, oh gosh, we got to write this essay again. Well, and also like, I think your purpose as a student, but also my purpose as a teacher. Like, I'm not here to give you busy work or just, you know, I have other things to do. But, like, what I'm trying, like, I'm trying to give you, like, not just skills, but information and experiences that can go throughout your lifetime, not even just this one semester. Um, I don't know, like, just also just know that my role here is also connected to this learning and and growing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I think the the negative stereotype that, that they might have in mind is like there's just a certain number of days in the school year and we just got to fill the days right i don't want to do anything i don't got enough to fill the semester so i'm just gonna 
fill the days with busy work, right? I just got to keep you busy so you don't notice that I'm not doing anything. I'm not sure that I've met anybody who does that. I mean, like, as I mentioned earlier, like, I could use another week I could do to that. cover the material that I want to cover in my yeah. class. You know, it's not busy work. We move fast. There's a lot of work, but it's not busy work, you know. Though sometimes it might feel like it, but that's... I mean, you got to practice your handwriting before you can practice, you know, writing full sentences. Like you got to master writing letters before you can write a full sentence, even if you can speak it. we got to master the basics of physics. you got to actually do some problems before we can put those out into the real world and see the ridiculous complexity that happens when you take Newton's laws and put them in real life. Well, I think that's part of, you know, that's one of the frustrations in, in physics is not the only class or field where that appears, where the, the frustration is, you know, I want to be able to see this applied, and, but you, again, you know, as a student, you don't yet have the vocabulary to, to really dive into a, a top-level application of the, of the topic. Yeah. But it's difficult to it's difficult to get that across to students without mm -hmm. sounding um, what's the word pedantic? I don't know. They, to, <laughs> without sounding like oh well, you're not smart enough yet, everybody. Just wait for next year, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, but students but, seem to think, well, I did this. I took English in high school. I took history in high school. I shouldn't have to retake these things. It's just a repeat of everything I already know. And in some cases, they will be repeating some information. I'm probably going to have to talk about thesis statements, especially if you don't have one. You know, you're like, oh, I heard about that in high school. Yeah, but are you applying it? Um, but just different things like that. Like, it's an idea of starting probably with some information that you know, but building off of that and that, yeah, you're at a different level. And if you, I always think that students probably would struggle if we moved them out of the core and directly into their classes if we kept things at the same level. They're not ready. Yeah, they're not, I mean, yeah, they're not prepared. They're no. not, they don't have... As much as like, why do I? Why do they have to take, uh, you know, first year writing seminar, and and writing 102 is required here. Uh, the reason they have to take that is because if they don't master those skills that are in those two classes, when you get to your capstone, you cannot pass your capstone. Right? There's I a level of writing. When my frustration with with that is uh, once again in high school, I get the kids uh, recalcitrance when it's we're we're serving every student for everything. And you're serving kids who have selected to go to university, and they picked their college out of however many, and you know maybe it was three that they had to pick from because of their GPA, but maybe it was 20, and maybe they could have gone anywhere, and they picked to go to your university just because they liked the size of it. But you know for whatever reason, hey guys, you picked to be here. It's hard for me to like shed the chip on my shoulder about that. You, you know you could you could pick to go home. <laughs> Well, thank you for saying that because sometimes I feel like I get a little bitter, but right? I don't know. Yeah, well, no, it's a good, anyway, it's a, it's a good reminder sometimes, you know, all the time. Can we talk about syllabi? Sure. Briefly? Sure. Maybe maybe more than briefly? Oh, but, um, <laughs> I want my students to read them, to read mine. Why? Read mine. <laughs> because everything is in it. Everything. Here, I'll tell you why. They're not used to it being that way. In high school, the teacher's going to read the syllabus word for word. Now, so I'm generalizing. This is not the case with every high school class. In fact, I stopped doing this recently, and I chopped my syllabus down to like two pages, uh, just really one page, the front and the back, so that I didn't have to 
bother too much. And I put it all online so people could find it. But, it, you know, I'm going to read down the school rules and the class rules and the consequences and the blah, blah, blah. And there's nothing in the course syllabus in high school about chapter six is statistics. Chapter seven is, and the test is on December 25th. And you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing in the syllabus like that in high school the way there is in college. Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, the test is on Christmas? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Better read the last syllabus. Year, <laughs> last year it was two days before Christmas, so yeah. Yeah, that was the last day of, of classes at UW-Madison when I was a grad student. There were some grad students who were there till the evening of December 23rd grading final exams. Yeah. That had been taken that day. So... Our syllabi contain a lot of the same things, but I actually have a separate like course schedule versus a syllabus. So my syllabus sounds a lot like maybe what Drew has, and that's like policies and procedures. Like mm -hmm. I have um, like a late policy, my attendance policy, my revision policy, general expectations for the class. You know how what the kinds of things that really kind of get on my nerves that students really shouldn't do. So a couple of things. I was actually reading a little article this summer about syllabi, and one of the things that they mentioned is that they're written like legal documents, which is what they are. Well, for college, that's what they are. <laughs> they, I mean, yeah, so it was talking about college syllabi. They are, they are I don't think you get a lawyer, but maybe it would hold up. Well, no, I'll so like, tell you, that, that's how I got them. out of having to take a writing test to get into grad school. So that my college, I went to get my master's, asked for, do you have a writing, a, a baccalaureate level writing qualification? I'm like, yeah, I have a bachelor's degree from the United States of America, a <laughs> university in the United States. Do I have to re-qualify that I can write? Why did I get a bachelor's? Uh, and they said, well, you don't have to take it if you just bring us the syllabus from your upper level writing course, which I happen to have saved. Good for you. So, so, I mean, they do act as legal documents, certainly, and they're I a mean, record of the class. Right. They're a record of the class. They set out my expectations and the consequences for not meeting my expectations. They set out the the grading, like what is an A percent-wise mm -hmm. or whatever. And you can't change that once it's in writing and in the syllabus. No, I can't. I can't. So, in that sense, it's legally binding. Right. And if I say, this essay is worth 10% and it's all mapped out, I have to keep it at that. Yeah. Or have like a whole class discussion. Right. Unless right? I'm like, okay, everyone's grade will improve if I make this yeah, work. Nobody worries if the grades are going to get better. Yeah. Right. If you're all like, this is going to be worth 5% because you did so well. Yeah. Like, people have that's it. probably, you're going to go talk to my boss and my boss is going to tell me, don't do that. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons is that I, I think students don't read them is because they read like a EULA, an end user license agreement, when you're like, I'm going to do this thing. And then I'm going to play this game or use this software, and you're all like, here are terms and conditions. You just click yes. Like, very few people actually read that. And I think that comes out the same for our students. That they don't. Mine is engaging. I'm sorry. How many pages is your syllabus? Well, it's very long, but it has bullets and bolded things, and it has jokes. How many pages? <laughs> I think it's eight. Yeah, my full one is eight as well. So what I've done this semester, I've started to do this semester, is I've taken the main points. So I've left all the sort of, I have a full syllabus, which is all of this stuff. And then I have, like, it's literally one page with links to my full syllabus, which is like, we're going to learn some astronomy. You need this book. Yeah. You know, you will need help, and that's okay. You can find me, you know, my office, my phone number, you know, my office hours. If you need more help, you know, student services, learning center with tutoring and, or tutoring, whatever it is. 
sounds like and those things are helpful to the students but don't necessarily need to be part of that legal side of your syllabus where it would it should be your what grading scale contact info office hours and then the schedule of your you know major grade portions there's going to be a 5,000 word writing requirement and that will be you know uh, set up later on but it's going to be due on November 5th right yeah I mean I, I have a whole bunch of stuff in there which is like and here's your percent breakdown you know with links to the parts in my big syllabus where I talk about, well, here's what your journal is going to be, and here's the description of your reflection paper. So at least at the first glance, they will actually, I think I have a shot of having them read this. It, it is one page, one-sided, you know, to say, here's the setup of, my, of the class, the things you need to worry about, and you should dive in because you need to know my late work policy, but I've given you, like, the really brief thumbnails of, like, you need to come talk to me. That's I haven't given you any of the details, but that's like the de that's the the general thing of come talk to me if you need to turn in something late. You know, we have a lot of things. Here's all the things that make up your grade. Don't panic; it's in the schedule. Link to the schedule. You know, and so it I I think it yeah. gives enough information, but without overloading them. But even if your professor is doing like a 16-page massive thesis, you need to skim that sucker because it's all in there, and you need to know it. Just, yeah, I think that's a big difference between. You know, in high school, and and again, I'm generalizing, so I know there's there's teachers in high schools and districts out there that do it differently and better. I think students are a lot used to a syllabus that's padded with some stuff from 20 years ago, and the date forgot to get changed, and there's a there's a section in there on dress code that we don't even follow anymore, and you know, the, there's all of those things that are just kind of padded. Where some principal five years ago said everybody needs to put this in their syllabus about no chewing gum. And it's still left in because nobody updated their syllabus from, you know. Yeah. And students are used to it being nearly useless, and the teacher's going to read it all verbatim on day one anyway. Yeah, I, I, got, I ain't got time for that. Well, I'm not saying yeah, <laughs> There are people who have things on there from 20 years ago, I'm sure. I'm and there sure. are certain pieces that I recycle because I'm like, well, my, you know, late policy is... The same. The, been the same for the last few years. I mean, I actually have changed things, um, but... I mean, I meticulously go back through those things because I'm like, this is what my class is, and if I mess something up, then I kind of have to stick to what's in here or potentially go through a long discussion about things I need to change. So, I don't know. Like, we, we worked on it. We thought about it. These things are important. I mean, I also we have a copy budget. I'm not going to want to photocopy eight-page syllabi for 30 people just because... Yeah, well, and I think that's the difference. Is it, the, the syllabus does a lot more connection to you and your profession than it does to K-12. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm making that up, but it seems like, like I still have to have a syllabus and I have to turn it into my principal, but a lot of the things that go into my syllabus are not decided by me, and so it feels like the repercussions, if, if somebody typoed the thing that I put in there, I'm, hey, I'm putting in what I was told. The dress code is this. That's the school board's dress code. It's not Mr. Highland's dress code. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we have a few so, of those things. Like, we have a disability statement mm -hmm. that has to be... That's in the legal. That's in the legalese version right. of my syllabus. It has to be there. There's an academic integrity, I think, is yeah. most people have. Well, but we get to... that. We don't have, like, a set one that goes in, but you that's should true. have something you should in have there. Because if you don't, then... Yeah. Because it's binding. And that, 
That's in the school handbook in high school. It's the, the academic dishonesty school board policy that's, that's dictated to us. And, and not, not that that's a bad thing. I mean, I think that it should be uniform across all the high schools in town, should have the similar, you know, policies like that. But at university, it's a different... Well, and, and for us, the, the, I mean, we talked about the catalog some before. I mean, and that lays out, you know, what are the steps of official, like, academic dishonesty. Like, we're actually going to run this up the chain of command, but at the very basic level of what are what are the immediate repercussions of being of academic dishonesty is at the professor's discretion, mm-hmm. and so the like, do you get a zero? Do you fail the class? Yeah. Do I mean do you get do you get a rewrite or no or do you just take a zero for that assignment? Like there's a there's a huge range of of possible consequences for academic. Uh, dishonesty, and that sh- that needs to be in my syllabus if I'm going to. Well, if you're going to apply it. If I'm going to apply it. Yeah, and there's the there's a one of the differences between you know K twelve and, and college too is, is the consequences at, at K twelve are, I guess, can be super super high stakes, and at the same time, like an academic dishonesty issue, in in my district, we've had discussions in the in the at the site level in the department and at the even up at the school board to say. Yeah, we need to be really strict and, and really um, concise and consistent, but also we don't want to ruin these individuals for the rest of eternity for careers and things. So we, we would, you know, one of the options up at the front is to allow a retake. And, you, and that may be very different at college where the stakes are super high, and they ought to be a little higher than high school, you know. I don't Have we talked about plagiarism and academic dishonesty? I don't remember. I think we talked about it as part of the catalog sort of a thing. I know, I might earmark that. Yeah. Because my students at least seem very freaked out by it. They seem... (laughs) Well, yeah, but I mean, it's almost as if they were told, and I don't know that this is true, but based on sort of their stories that, you know, you better watch out because when you get to college, they're going to nail your ass or whatever. Uh, so I don't know, like, I would like to have a discussion about what policies are like at the K-12 through level and also maybe what students might expect yeah. once they get We should college. discuss that because, at, at least in my district, um, we're nailing them already for plagiarism. Get them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I am, I'm not the plagiarism police. No, she's really not, though you might think that she is. No. <laughs> I have to step out, so I know we're are we close yeah, to your end of the Yeah, we're, I, I think we have time. Uh, we're, we're at the end of our time. So uh, thanks, Drew, for joining us, and Melody as well. So please bring your books to yeah. class already. Have purchased them before you come to class in, in college. It's not lot, too late. It's not too late. Two-day shipping. <laughs> two-day shipping for Amazon Prime, uh, or just pay for two-day shipping. Allow, allow your professors to... And teachers to to tell you what their environment in their classroom is going to be like. Hopefully, it will be a positive one, and at least skim that syllabus. <laughs> we don't like telling you things that are in the syllabus. Well, on that note, uh, thanks everybody for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye.